Um, but now we're going to pray. And this morning our prayers are going to be informed with the first part of our reading. We're going to read Genesis 32, and then we'll read Genesis 33 as the main part of our reading later on. And it says this. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favour in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks him, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered a multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, two hundred female goats and twenty male goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, thirty milking camels and thirty car and their calves, forty cows and ten bulls, twenty female donkeys and ten male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and third and all who followed the droves, You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. You shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had. Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with Jacob, until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, 
I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Well, we pick up our Bible reading at Genesis 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and two female servants. He put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. When Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servants. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. Alas, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favour in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favour in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. You have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough, thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard, for one day all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servants, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, at the pace of the children, until I come to the land of Sincere. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favour in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Sukkoth. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padam Aram, and he camped before the city. From the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it Elo Elohi Israel. Well, we're going to have a look at that passage in a minute, but before we do, let me just remind you that there'll be an opportunity to ask questions after the sermon. 
You have your sermon outline to use if you wish. And then finally, let's ask God for his help. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we reflect upon Jacob's journey to see his brother and his wrestling with this man, we pray, Lord, that we might know um, why these events take place and what they mean for us, so we might know you better. Amen. God's sovereignty becomes problematic for many people. If God is truly sovereign, does that mean he causes everything? And everything must include both the good and the bad. One way out of this conundrum is to play down God's sovereignty. But what does that look like? God is sovereign over most things. Well, now God isn't sovereign at all. This then raises the question, if God causes both the good and the bad, wouldn't that may mean that he is made responsible for the bad? However, as we've seen worked out in the book of Genesis, and in a not too distant past, as we saw in the book of Esther, in God's providence, he's able to work through the evil intentions of man to bring about his good plan and purpose. So a couple of weeks ago, we saw how Esau was flippant towards his birthright, how Isaac failed to arrange Esau's marriage, and Rebecca and Jacob deceived Isaac and stole Esau's birthright. Yet all this took place to fulfill the prophecy that Jacob would receive blessing. God worked through man's sin to bring about his purpose. Now returning to the question of God's sovereignty, we can ask the question, what part does God play when we face trials? If we say it's nothing to do with him, we have to ask what has happened to his sovereignty. If we say he's bringing us these trials, we have to ask, why is he willing to bring suffering upon his people? Well, today we pick up the account of Jacob in the book of Genesis, and God has told Jacob to return to the promised land. But returning to the land means Jacob facing his brother, the brother who he stole the blessing from some 20 years ago. And the brother who vowed to kill Jacob once he'd mourned for his dead father. If you remember when Jacob was leaving the promised land, when he was scared, alone and uncertain about the future, he had a vision of angels ascending and descending a ladder. And at the top of the ladder was God. And God promised, Behold, I am with you. Now Jacob is returning to the promised land, equally worried as to how he will be greeted. And once again, he's met by the angels of God. 
The account of chapter 32 and 33 can be split into three parts. The first, Jacob makes arrangements to appease his brother. The third part is paralleled, and Jacob again makes further arrangements to meet his brother. But in the middle, Jacob has this peculiar experience where he's given a new name. Now it's this middle section that's of most significance because this experience has quite an impact upon Jacob, which explains his different approach when attempting to appease his brother and how he finally approaches his brother. So let's make a few observations about the first and third section. Jacob is worried and he sends some messages ahead with the hope of softening the blow when he eventually comes face to face with Esau. But the messengers, they never tell Jacob how his message was received. The only news they bring back is Esau comes to meet you and he's got 400 men with him. What does the 400 men mean? Is Esau preparing for battle? Or is Esau ready to receive his brother in a royal fashion? Jacob assumes the worst and separates into two camps so that the one that is attacked can allow time for the other to escape. Jacob then prays. An extremely simple, even crude reading of the prayer goes something like this. God, you promised this to me. Keep your promise. On a more detailed analysis, we see that the first that first Jacob calls God, God of my father, Abraham, and my father, Isaac. Without having to say any more detail than this, Jacob is able to reference all the remarkable things that God did for both his grandfather and his father. Jacob begins with how it was God who told him to return to your country, that I may do good. And makes the point implicitly that he will, God will be unable to do God, uh, good for Jacob if Esau gets the better of him. Finally, he asks explicitly that God would prevent Esau from attacking me, the mothers, and the children. His reason being, you'll not be able to make my offspring as the sand of the sea if my children are dead. The next thing to observe is the order in which everything is sent out. Jacob sends out three droves with space between each of them. Each drove have a large amount of gifts to try and appease Esau. Then during the night he takes his wife and his children across the Jabbok and stays behind by himself. Jacob has put everything he has between him and Esau and he remains right at the back. But then after Jacob's experience, at the end of chapter 32, everything changes.
we see he arranges the two servants and their children, then Leah and her children, and finally Rachel and last of all Joseph. Then it's Jacob who leads the group, putting himself at the front. Esau's response to Jacob is like that of the father of the prodigal son. He ran, he fell on his neck, and he kissed him. Esau is introduced to the family and asks Jacob what is the meaning of all these gifts. Now Jacob feels it's extremely important that Esau accepts the gifts. We might make a parallel between God when forgiveness is asked from him, a sacrifice is made, or a gift is made, and that offering would be accepted by God. And Jacob has said, For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. So for Jacob to be sure that he is forgiven by his brother, and truly accepted, he needs Esau to accept his gifts as well. But the account ends with Jacob still a little uneasy. Can all be forgiven and forgotten so easily? And at the end of the passage we see he resists continuing with Esau. But what of this mysterious event in the middle that led to Jacob changing his approach? Jacob is now all alone, having sent his family across the river. And he finds himself fighting with a stranger. The stranger doesn't appear to be able to get the better of Jacob. And yet, by merely touching Jacob's hip, he dislocates it. The stranger wishes to be let go, but Jacob believes this mysterious man has a blessing for Jacob, so he insists that he won't let him go until he's blessed. The stranger gives Jacob a new name. The name he's given is Israel. The reason being, you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob has struggled with men and prevailed. Now he's prevailed against God as well. And it's this that prepares him for his meeting with Esau. It is this that assures him that he will prevail. We would think the idea of wrestling with God is unusual. And yet here we are, only 32 chapters into the Bible, and a man has wrestled with God. The question then is, is this something that's unique to Jacob, or is, this an, or is there an equivalent that we experience? In order to consider this, let's begin with a quite a crude understanding of what has happened, and then gradually nuance it a little. So Jacob is worried that when he meets Esau, Esau will kill him and his family. But then Jacob is opposed by God. And despite being opposed by God, 
Jacob is delivered. Now Jacob is confident that he will be delivered also from Esau. But this raises the question, who delivered Jacob? And the answer to that question can only be God. What we now have is God opposing Jacob, while at the same time God delivering Jacob. God delivers Jacob from the opposition God himself supplies. Notice how this in no way undermines God's sovereignty, but affirms it in all its fullness. God is both the one who opposes and defends Jacob. Having come out the other side, Jacob is now prepared to face a more modest trial, the meeting with his brother. So what of our trials? Dare we suggest that God is opposing us when we experience trials? Well, if that leaves us a little uncomfortable, we must remember it isn't possible to have the one without the other. As God opposes us, it is he that delivers us. And having endured the trial, we are prepared for any and every future trial, knowing that God delivers his people. And also assured that God's opposition will never exceed that which we can endure. As we finish, I want to end with a quote from Calvin. He puts it like this. Such is God's apportioning of this conflict, that while he assails us with one hand, he defends us with the other. Yes, inasmuch as he supplies us with more strength to resist than he employs in opposing us, we may truly and properly say that he fights against us with his left hand, and for us with his right hand. For while he lightly opposes us, he supplies invincible strength, whereby we overcome. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this remarkable event that we can read of history when you wrestled with your servant Jacob. And yet we also see that you deliver him from your own opposition. As we reflect on these things, right, might we see some similar events or some similar sentiment in our own trials? That you discipline your children through trials and persecution so that they might learn endurance and perseverance, so that you might keep them to the end. Amen. Well, I said at the start there would be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things we've reflected.
Uh, Henry. Yes, interesting question. So, just to repeat it for the recording. So, as we've been looking through Genesis, we've seen the idea that if a man sees God, he will die. But here we've seen that Jacob has wrestled with God, but he hasn't died. That's just a comment. Have you got a question? <laughs> What's going on there? Yeah? Okay. So, that's a good question. So, I guess this is something that we see throughout the Bible. We have this idea that, yeah, so we have this idea that God is holy and we are sinful. And because he is holy, he's angry with our sin. And so if the two were to engage with one another, i.e. God was to see the sinful man, then God's anger would, um, be, would consume the man as it were. You get this elsewhere as well, like in Isaiah 6. So that's one of the things that Isaiah is very concerned with when he sees... God is that he is an unholy man of unholy people and yet he's seen God you know, he's expecting to be consumed but at the same time we have what are known as theophanies where God reveals himself to his people so he can communicate with them so you see this we've seen this already in um, Genesis, so back when Abraham saw the three men, we later discovered those three men represent God and his angels. So in some respects, Abraham has been uh, communicated with God and seen him. So in Genesis 32 verse 30, we see that Jacob says this. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So ultimately what we've got here is, on the one hand, a holy God will consume a sinful person, but on the other hand, there are occasions when God does see men face to face. So what must uh, and here Jacob puts the focus on the fact that he has been delivered. So he was expecting to be consumed, but God has prevented that from happening. So that starts to unfold this idea that yes, if a man sees God face to face, he would and should and will be consumed. Unless, of course, it's God's act that would deliver him from that. And that's what we get in Isaiah. So he's concerned that he has unclean lips. 
but God makes provision for him and touches his ugly lips with the coals. So both, in, yeah, so just to reiterate, if an unholy person sees God, he will be consumed, but God is able to deliver him from that consumption. Is that okay? Is that okay? Hang on. So I think, kind of similar to back when we've seen, um, where was it? Um, yeah, so back in Genesis 18 verse 1, and the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. And he sat at the door of his tent in the heating of the day. As we went through that, we saw, we kept getting this peculiar thing where three men visit Abraham, but the narrator understands it as being the Lord visited Abraham. And then two of the men head off, and then later on they're referred to as angels, and then the Lord stays behind. So it's like, is, is the man that stays behind the Lord, or is that angel representing God? That sort of thing. So it kind of raises that question. Here then, when we get to our chapter, all the way through we've got this, this we've got a man who's engaging with Jacob. Jacob is unsure who the man is, but by the end of the experience, and given the fact that he's changed Jacob's name, and given the fact that he's touched Jacob's hip and dislocated it, um, which is miraculous, Jacob then makes the conclusion, for I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So he, he has had a similar experience to Abraham, in that he's seen a man who represents God, as far as we can tell. Any more questions or comments? Uh, Susie. Yeah, no, I don't think there's much to be taken from it. So just to repeat the question, what do we understand by the hip um, being dislocated? So I think you've got this idea that, well, it's, I mean, the whole event's peculiar, isn't it? You've got how can, if the man is God, how can Jacob keep him? And then, the, then God's, or the man, is saying, I want to go, it's time for me to go, and Jacob won't let go of him. So... And yet he holds on to him. And th this is when then, I think he dislocates his hip, obviously just, just by the lightest of touches, as it were, to demonstrate you're engaging with someone who you cannot defeat. And yet he perseveres. 
So I think it just sort of gives away the fact that this is not just a man. This is more than a man. And it gives away that Jacob is only winning this battle because he's been allowed to win the battle. I think that's the sort of thing that's kind of going on with, with that. Time for one more. Josh. Um, on the subject of like wrestling with God, so I guess I just wanted to ask like because when I'm talking about wrestling with God, I'm talking about plants football and something that we've got to do, and like when times are hard, we might like, wrestle with God and we go to our mosques and just like, share. This is hard, and this is hard, and like, I hate you, God, and like, um, he can take it, almost, but he can, I don't know whether that's something to come across, but yeah. then this idea that sort of God can just take our frustration because he's God, so it's okay to just go there now. Just wanted to know, well, I just wanted to ask really, you know, Yeah, good question. Yeah, so just to repeat it for the recording, so um, sometimes it's presented to us that wrestling with God is when we go to God and let out our anger and frustrations, not just to him, but upon him. And so because he's God, he can take it and we can really kind of let go and kind of lose our inhibitions and really say, we're angry with you, God, because of this, that, and the other. Um, how do we think about that, particularly with what we've been talking about this morning? Yeah, so it is something I've come across, and Adrian and I have talked about it because he's heard a sermon, uh, which has been exactly that. Um, I guess a couple of things to be thinking about. People do believe they find it exemplified in the Bible, but I wonder whether that's questionable. So I guess an obvious place to go to would be the Psalms. And and maybe Job, that might be where people go as well. Um, But I'm not sure quite what they're describing and what Job and the Psalms are doing is quite the same. I mean, we've got to remember who it is that we're engaging with. This is the creator who sustains us, who brings us into existence. When we approach God, the Psalms talk about, actually, we should be still and know that I'm the Lord. We should come to him with reverence and awe. We should remember that he is the creator who brings things into existence, and therefore he deserves glory and honour and praise he brings about our redemption so I wonder whether there's yeah, whether actually it's not appropriate to approach him like that but rather um, approach him with a reverence and awe having said that there is this sense where 
the Psalms do have that sense of, woe is me, um, my enemies are getting the better of me. And then they ask the question, where are you, Lord, in this? Will you help me? That sort of, I mean, it's a very poor paraphrase. But then what the psalmist then does is he continues, he doesn't stop there. He then almost reminds himself of the promises that have been made to him. But I will trust in you. Your love is steadfast. Um, you will do, bring an end to my enemies. I know upon you I can depend. Again, another paraphrase, but that sort of sentiment. So the interesting thing that's happening there is he's sharing his anxiety and then he replaces that with the promises that he has in God, which I think is totally, obviously totally appropriate because it's there, spelled out for us. So, and then I think that's where it kind of fits in with what we've been talking about today. I mean, one of the things, I guess, that we've got to remember, and we'll look at this a little bit in the reflection as well, is that everything that takes place is under God's sovereignty and under God's providence. So when things happen to us, it might feel easier to say this is out of God's control because he wouldn't allow this to happen to us. Initially, that's easier but then it becomes problematic because, hang on, if it's out of God's control, is there any hope or possibility that he can do anything about it? Because this, that is outside of God's control, is something that he is unaware of or unable to interact with or engage with. But rather, when God raises things up, cause us problems as we've been talking about as he opposes us what it does is provides us with the opportunity to rely and depend upon his steadfast faith remember his promises and remember and our faith is going to be tested as well and in being tested it's shown to be proven to be strong good and sturdy now, interesting, I think in um, Carson's book on how, uh, called How Long, O Lord, when he talks about the whole idea of suffering, he gives the example of, of a Christian minister, minister, I think, who fell away. And the observation that was made of him was his faith was never tested. He never went through a period of opposition. He had a very easy Christian life. And then when something difficult did come along, it was too much for him. So then when we reflect on that, we can see actually those times that were hard and difficult for us have given us a strength and faith that's stronger than what it would have been had we not experienced them, so that we can persevere to the end. So in a peculiar way, we've been praying for these sorts of things. When we ask God to help us persevere, we're asking God bring us some times of opposition so that our faith would become stronger. Now it's important to just affirm 
it's very hard and not, nece and not necessary for us to understand the intricacies precisely of how that all plays out. Um, because we can't do that. What we can do is go back to the Bible and see where those intricacies are spelled out. So an obvious one would be when Pharaoh opposes the people of Israel, God explains precisely what's going on there. I guess when Jesus is opposed as well, God is explaining precisely what's going on there and how God's involved in that. So we take comfort from those past experiences of God opposing his people and delivering them, knowing that he will do the same for us, though we might not understand the details of it. I think there's a lot to think about. Cool. We'll stop there. I know there were a couple of other hands that were up, but uh, if you want to come and ask me or talk about yourselves about whatever queries and questions are there. Um, let's sing then our next song, which is King of Kings, Majesty.